The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. We appreciate you guys making us your weekly destination to catch up with some of our favorite uh, Atlanta and Georgia guests, both past and present. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. All right, um, I'm kind of excited about this as a uh, an Atlanta resident, born and raised. We don't have many of us, but we wear that like a badge of honor. And uh, there was a point in our history where there was a not-so-nice name attached to our city, and it happens to be the title of a new book by Clayton Truder, who's kind enough to join us, to talk about his book, Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta, and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. And Clayton joins us right now here on Welcome to Atlanta. Clayton, we appreciate the time. Give me a little background here. Why did the idea of this book interest you? I... uh... I'm a PhD in U.S. history. I write about the history of American cities. Uh, I got interested in the history of pro sports franchise relocations. And Atlanta intrigued me because in many ways, Atlanta invents the modern sports landscape. It is the first city that goes out and seeks teams in all of the major professional sports leagues as a way to bring prestige to the city as a source of civic unity. And the civic leaders in Atlanta of the 1960s, whether it's the political leaders or corporate leaders, did a fantastic job bringing pro sports to town, bringing it to Atlanta in the same way they would have brought a branch plant or a factory. The story of the book in many ways is how difficult it proves to build success and popularity for these teams that all come to town so quickly. Nobody had ever done this before, so there was no precedent for it. So my book is essentially the story of the pursuit of pro sports in Atlanta, the team's arrival, and then the response to the teams in the 1960s and 1970s. So paint me a picture of Atlanta for those who either weren't born or weren't living here. I mean, Atlanta was small town USA even until the 80s, so I I can't even imagine convincing, you know, Atlanta residents that here come professional sports in the mid-60s. Well, Atlanta in 1959, in terms of the metropolitan area, crossed the 1 million residents threshold. And certainly it's small town compared to what it became in the 80s and onward, but was certainly the media center of the southeast, the corporate center of the southeast. It was called by many people in the, in the particularly the business press, the Manhattan of the south because it played such a central role in the regional economy. And the city leaders, most notably Ivan Allen, who was the mayor from 1962 to 1970, got the idea that Atlanta should pursue a major league sporting status similar to the status it had started to develop in terms of its uh, position in the national, in the nation's uh, economic landscape. So how important, well, all right, there's a few avenues I want to go here. Tell me about like the first investigation for Atlanta into uh, procuring a a professional sports franchise because it turned out to be the move of the Milwaukee Braves. But like, what were they looking to do and how was the timeline? 
It really started with Ivan Allen's mayoral campaign. He replaced William Hartsfield, who did a lot of things to boost the city, but was not in particular interested in bringing pro sports to town. Ivan Allen, who'd been the head of the city's Chamber of Commerce, uh, ran for mayor on a platform that included a plank called Major League Atlanta. We need to build a stadium and an arena to lure pro sports to our community. And it really starts from there. Over the next five years, Atlanta pushes to build a stadium. They procure land near uh, near downtown to build what becomes Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. They end up luring the Braves and Falcons almost simultaneously during 1964 and 1965. Once Atlanta has a stadium plan in place and starts building it, it becomes very easy to lure professional sports teams. These leagues have a monopoly over who who are the members of these leagues. And suddenly, once you see a city that is obviously so eager to, to join major professional sports, um, the desire of those leagues to place a team there grew considerably. In many ways, the same story is true for, for the Omni Arena, too. The Omni gets built in many respects because Tom Cousins, the great real estate developer, is looking for a, a catalyst for the redevelopment of downtown, and he acquires the Hawks, who initially play at Georgia Tech and later gets a franchise in the NHL, the Flames, to serve as the, um, to serve as the, the, the basis for his new, uh, his new arena. So in many ways, there's a lot of things happening simultaneously in the city. The city leaders did such a good job developing a sense of momentum for Atlanta, which showed these leagues that um, the city was certainly uh, desiring, at least its leadership was desiring, um, bringing in pro sports. So let me ask you about the baseball part of this and the Braves first, um, mm-hmm. because – I mean, forever and a day, college sports ruled the day. I mean, it still does today, but even more so then without professional sports. We had the Atlanta Crackers, who were mm-hmm. Negro League baseball. and Well, then the Black Crackers, where there was the Crackers who were in the Southern League. Correct. Um, yeah. Okay, so what was the fan interest in Atlanta for that, and how did they gauge what it would be for a major league product? The, the Crackers had drawn incredibly well in the 40s and 50s. They were among the best drawing teams in the Southern League. But minor league baseball itself, not just the, not just in Atlanta, but nationally, faced a series of challenges in the 50s, as the 50s and 60s, as big league baseball started to expand, as access to the game on radio and television expanded. Um, so minor league baseball was in a tough position in Atlanta, but more generally on an, in a national um, sense too. In terms of, of in terms of seeking out the Braves, in many ways they're totally separate stories. Um, the Crackers end up becoming briefly the AAA affiliate of the Milwaukee Braves in 1965, which proved to be a lame duck season. The Milwaukee Braves agreed after the 64 season to move to Atlanta, but uh, Milwaukee County officials got an injunction against the team moving until it fulfilled the final year of its lease in 1965. So the Crackers play a role in the Braves' history in that sense, but they they really their popularity had been waning since the early 19, uh, 1960s. And in 1965, actually, the Crackers play in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and draw peanuts to the stadium. Just a couple of thousand people are coming to most of the games. So the interest in town had definitely shifted to the major leagues in terms of baseball. Uh, but Matt, you were you were mentioning earlier in terms of the um, in terms of the popularity of college football. One of the major stories of my book is that. Just because pro sports came to town didn't mean that Atlanta area residents all of a sudden gave up on their pre-existing interests. 
uh, college football obviously remained incredibly popular, even was gaining in popularity uh, during this time period, particularly with the University of Georgia. Golf is probably Atlanta was the best amateur golf market in the country in this time period, had the most people playing of anywhere in the country. You had all kinds of outdoor recreation opportunities available. Um, You had stock car racing. You had incredibly popular professional wrestling in this time period. So people in the region had a wide range of sporting interests, uh, people of very different demographics um, that predated um, the big leagues coming to town. And people simply didn't give up on them just because they were teams wearing Atlanta across their chest. Yes, we're brought to you by the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. It's kind of my go-to. I'm a little bit lucky. I live in Woodstock, so I'm right around the corner to downtown Woodstock on Main Street to see the Daily Draft, which I've told you many times, it's the ultimate sports bar experience, not your father's sports bar. You're talking wall-to-wall flat screens, self-serve taps, craft bar, chef-inspired menu. And with sizzling plays ahead, if you're planning on tailgating both this summer or this fall, maybe you're going to MBS or Athens or on the flats, or you're hosting a game night at your home, check out the Daily Draft's newest menu edition, the Tailgate Box. Yes, you can enjoy their wings, boneless wings, a couple of sides, a bag of popcorn, and of course, their homemade jumbo cookies. Now, these are pre-order only. You can go to the uh, thedailydraft.net or give them a call at the Daily Draft to get the pre-orders in. If you're also looking for a new place to grab lunch during the week, or even order on Uber Eats, check out the Daily Draft. They have a great lunch lineup for only 11 bucks Monday through Friday from 11.30 till 3.30. Again, go to thedailydraft.net or you can check them out on Facebook or Instagram. The Daily Draft, a unique experience from the moment you walk through the door, a walk-up window to order drinks from the sidewalk, craft beer bar, pool tables, darts, wall-to-wall flat screens. You won't miss a single second of the game. Go check them out today at The Daily Draft. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation, like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Well, and here's uh, here's a couple of things I want to want to follow up with Clayton. So, as we talked about it, the population, as you gave the number, I mean, it it kept growing as as you know we've evolved and finally the Olympic city and and what we've seen over the last twenty five thirty years. But Atlanta mm-hmm. was a small town in the fact that like the suburbs, there was no urban sprawl. People were living a lot closer to in town, so getting to people to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, less traffic, all that type of thing, I'm sure was a little bit easier. What was the initial buzz? Here comes Hank Aaron. Here come the Milwaukee Braves to become Atlanta. Like, was there, without today's media that we know, what was the buzz for that product? Well, even then, I would just go back to traffic for a second. Even then, it was tough in many ways to convince the suburban residents there were to come into the city because so many people worked in Atlanta. If you were going to make a family night of it at the ballpark, you had to go back out to where you were in, in suburban Atlanta and then come back in 
for a 7 o'clock game. And with so many games on weeknights, those games really drew very poorly, even from the outset uh, for the Braves. They obviously drew better on the weekends. In terms of the buzz the team developed, certainly there was interest in it. Um, I think people were happy to have the teams. There was a massive parade uh, when the team arrived for its first exhibition games in 1965. During that lame duck year, the Braves came down and played nine exhibit. The Milwaukee Braves came down and played nine exhibition games. But even in the Braves' first uh, first month in town, there were some issues with its popularity relative to other events. Uh, the the um, the New York Yankees came down for a series of exhibition games and were radically outdrawn by the Masters that weekend, with many people from Atlanta going out to Augusta to, 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 to go even watch the practice rounds of the tournament. Far more people went and watched the Masters than came into Atlanta Stadium to watch Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle play. Um, when the Braves in 1969 win the NL West and play in the National League Championship Series, the two Braves home games that weekend in October of 69 were outdrawn by the, by the Georgia Tech football game, by the, by the Falcons game, and the University of Georgia game. Hmm. So the so the fourth and fifth best drawing events of that weekend were the National League Championship Series. So even then, there was certainly interest, but um, you'd see that Atlanta Atlanta area residents did not give up on, this, on their previous passions. Uh, and in many ways, I think that's a really interesting story of human agency, that people, simply because there was this new attraction available, people didn't stop being interested in the things they were already interested in. And over time, Atlanta's teams have evolved and developed uh, much steadier fan bases. But in many ways, this is a story of the difficulty of being an expansion pro sports city, especially if you bring in so many teams so quickly. Well, that's fascinating. It really is because I love your point that you can tell the fan, well, here's a new team. Just go love it. I think fandom is built over generation and then generations. And then all of a sudden you're, you're you know, that hardcore Georgia fan because grandpa and, and dad were fans and you became the same way. So was, let, let me ask you about that because th there was that matriculation of three professional sports franchises in a six-year period um you know they're not going to win a ton right away so you gave me the landscape of the braves and, and I'll, I'll go to the falcons and the hawks here in a minute but like were they concerned about the lack of interest did the league pay attention to the to, to professional sports in the south might not work the way they hoped or like was there any response from new york or anywhere else well it's tough to say what the leagues thought exactly because I had difficulty finding official papers from the leagues from that time period. But the sporting press in the North was certainly aware of it. There was a there was a huge feature in the Chicago Tribune in August of '66 called "A Disappointing Success" to describe the Braves' first year in town. That the Braves in '66 in Atlanta drew less than the Milwaukee Braves had in '53 when they first came to town. In 1953, the Milwaukee Braves drew drew, near, drew nearly 1.9 million people which was the best attendance in the history of the National League at that point. The Braves' first year in Atlanta, they draw about 1.4, 1.5 million, which was a good figure for the time period. Attendance has certainly increased for a lot of reasons since then. But th they were a little surprised the Braves weren't drawing better in Atlanta. And they were a little surprised that the kind of, I guess, corporate class in Atlanta wasn't buying more season tickets. Not that baseball is really a sport built around selling season tickets in the way that football is, but the Braves sold fewer than 3,000 when they got to town and didn't, ever, and didn't ever get above that number until the 1990s. So the Braves had difficulty building this kind of durable night-in, night-out fan base in, in many respects. Um, when there was a special attraction, the Braves would draw well. Like when Sandy Koufax came to town for his only pitching appearance in Atlanta, all of a sudden it was a full house at Atlanta Fulton <laughs> County Stadium. 
The next night, there was 4,000 people there. So people were willing to really turn out for what seemed like a spectacle, a major event. But just the, as you're saying, the, the, the loyalty that comes from following a team for generations didn't exist in the same way in Atlanta in that time period because this was a very new thing to people. And Atlanta also is having so many people from different places. Mm-hmm. It's in some ways also difficult for, for the new people if you were a, a, a fan from New York or Chicago or Boston many of those people are going to at least for a time retain those historic affiliations. And that was itself very difficult for Atlanta's uh, Atlanta in terms of building a, a, a steady fan base for its teams. I find this fascinating because like the things we talk about in 2021 were true. Even then of we're an event city. Uh, we're a city of so many people who have migrated from other places that, as you just said, Clayton building that generational fandom is, is it's always been a problem before I moved to the Falcons. Talk to me about the 1969 season because the Braves are winning. They go on to win the NL West. They play the Miracle Mets in 69. Did they see an uptick in attendance? Did the, did the city jump on? Because we all lived through 1991, people my age, and saw what that did to our city in a very different scenario. So how did 69 look? It's such a strange year. The Braves were pretty good all year. They were hanging in there. There were four teams that were tight in the race in the NL West into August. On September 1st, the Braves were on pace to draw fewer people than they had in any of their previous three years. But as the Braves get hot, a big part of it is acquiring Hoyt Wilhelm, who really shored up their bullpen. The Braves had always been able to hit, but at the launching pad, pitching had been a bit of an issue, even early on. And um, Hoyt Wilhelm shores up their bullpen, and they go and they get really hot in September, and that enables the team to beat out its previous year's attendance. So the the intense enthusiasm for the '69 Braves is really something that happens down the stretch, and in some ways it's remarkable because it has to compete directly with football season at that point. So it, it's. Um, in many ways, it's very short in duration. In 1970, there's a bit of a honeymoon effect that attendance goes up for the first half of the year. But as that 1970s Braves team falls out of contention, their attendance barely surpasses a million, which even at that time was just such a minimum threshold for accessible attendance. And then after 1970, the Braves don't draw a million fans again until 1980. Folks, let me ask you a question. When it comes to dealing with experts, don't you know they've got your best interest in mind? Think about somebody in the medical profession as opposed to you diagnosing yourself. You would never do that. When when it comes to insurance, I would think, yeah, you can go shop your own rates, but don't you want the professionals to do it for you, the experts? Well, I'm talking about the Rhodes Group. My friend Clayton Rhodes and the great folks at the Rhodes Group, they did that for me, and you should know. You should be shopping your rates or having pros do it each and every year because the rates change so much when I'm talking about home or car insurance you could be saving a bundle if you have professionals like the Rhodes Group shopping for you they did just that and they saved me a couple of thousand dollars a year with home and car insurance combined you can be the next to save a bunch of money with the Rhodes Group I want you to go to their website it's Rhodes-Group.com it's spelled R-H-O-A-D-S dash group.com or follow me on Real Matt Land on Twitter You'll see the link. You can click over and have them give you 10 quotes in 10 minutes at the Rose Group. Locally owned, a great bunch of folks who are professionals when it comes to finding you the best rates. Go to roads groupcom have them shop your rates, 
They'll give you 10 quotes in 10 minutes at the Rhodes Group. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps Five dollar minimum balance required. <laughs> and, and, and in the eighties, by the way, there were a number of years where the the attendance dipped below or were around a million too. So it was yeah, it was a rough two decade spur with a little you know pop in between in the early eighties where they were pretty good. So talk to me now about the landscape. Here come the Falcons. This insurance uh, led uh, family of, of the Smith family with Rankin Smith. Um, tell me the price tag if you have it though. When the Falcons get the franchise in Atlanta, and you know the NFL is trying to expand, we need more in the South. Here comes Atlanta to try to solve some of that. What was that whole process looking like? Well, Rankin Smith gets involved with the Falcons simply because his fraternity brother Carl Sanders, who was the governor at the time, encouraged him to. Atlanta had been trying to get pro football for several years. The Broncos almost relocated to town. A guy named Leonard Wrench, who was the head of uh, WSB at the time, tried to buy the Broncos and relocate them to town for roughly $4 million, but the stockholders of the Broncos essentially mutinied and prevented that from happening. Sanders, when he sees there's an opportunity to get to get the NFL to town, knows that his, his, his old fraternity brother and friend Rankin Smith could afford to do so. He's initially hesitant. He doesn't, isn't sure he wants to spend that much money on a team. Eventually, once the NFL agrees to, put, agrees to expand again, um, Rankin says he'll do it. The price tag is over $8 million, though. So he ends up paying nearly twice as much as uh, Leonard Wrench almost paid to bring the uh, AFL to town. And um, in many ways, it's uh, the, the Smith family's in a tough situation. They don't have any particular expertise in football. They're very, there's a very quick turnaround between when they get the franchise and when they're expected to field the team in 1966. The NFL has a very weak um, expansion draft for them with just very, very limited talent available to them. In addition, with the AFL playing also, there are just fewer good football players available because half the good players in the country are playing in the AFL at that time. So the Falcons end up end up in playing they're playing the Colts twice a year. They're playing the Packers twice a year. They're playing the Cowboys twice a year in the in the way the NFC was configured at this time. So they're a team with very limited talent playing the real heavyweights of the NFL, and and it certainly showed in the early years. Um, the the first man who was a Falcons coach was named Norb Hecker. He had been a uh, Lombardi assistant and was in, was considered by many to be a very good coach. He goes on to be an assistant for many years for Bill Walsh with the uh, 49ers and those Super Bowl winning teams, but it's just such an overman and overmatched team that they have a difficult time competing consistently. And even in the Falcons' first year, the Falcons sold a ton of season tickets. Obviously, Atlanta is for a century a football mad market. Uh-huh. They sold 45, 50,000 season tickets in their early years. But even then, 
They were having issues with fans not showing up for late season games, even though they bought the tickets. They had problems with fans leaving at halftime because the, <laughs> the Falcons were getting blown out. So the, the wind in the sails of that franchise faded fairly quickly. And the Smith family, I think, in some ways did a disservice to the, to the organization in the sense that early on they had a lot of non-football people in prominent roles, including they had a GM who was basically just an insurance guy for a while. Uh-huh. In 1967, the Falcons did a draft where not one of the guys made the roster. So they really didn't, you know, in the way more contemporary expansion rosters, uh, expansion franchises come into being, they have a lot more football expertise going on in terms of their front office than the Falcons did, who were in many respects still a very early expansion team in pro football. And they also had difficulty at Atlanta Stadium, where they were very much the second-class citizens to the Braves, who were the primary tenant. Um, they're playing their eight, you know, they're playing seven, eight games there a year, and their offices aren't that great. So they're they're very much feel like it's not really their home, even though it's their home. So that franchise was in a very difficult position. So I, and the fans realized it, like you're describing, and they were poorly run from ownership on down. Um, they, I mean, they didn't have a winning season forever. Um, you know, if you went, yeah, they make the playoffs for the first time in 78. Correct. Right. So they, you know, the, the, what you're trying to sell it on, like you said, Clayton is we know there's fandom down here. We're going to put a stripe for Georgia. We're going to put a stripe for Georgia tech. We're trying to try to build off the fanaticism of the fans. But like you said, that wears off quickly when you're not a competitive product. And I'll go back to rooting for my Georgia and my Georgia tech, even if I buy the tickets. So like, what, what was the plan to try to change any of that? Did you get a sense from talking to people what the Falcons you know, tried to do to, to change what was a poorly run franchise for most of their existence until, like you mentioned, the end of the 70s? In a strange way, I think even though things don't re- – I mean, things start to turn around in the late 70s. They, they certainly end up doing better drafting. They got – you know, with, with getting Eddie LeBaron in, things are certainly working out uh, better later on. I think when they finally moved out of Atlanta Stadium as their headquarters and ended up in Suwannee and having their own place – that was a real benefit to them because in many ways it's the starting point for them moving towards them having their own building. And certainly the Falcons had some struggles at at many points during their time at the Georgia Dome. But once they had their own facility, they were in a much better position to succeed. Um, Everybody I spoke to basically really liked the ownership in terms of just the personal sense of them. But in many ways for a long time, this is a franchise that wasn't relying on football people uh, to run it. And it showed on the field. So as we transition to the Hawks, let me ask you about the demographic demographic of Atlanta. There's a racial component in the South at this point. The NFL, even Major League Baseball, but the NBA is about to come in. Like, how open arms was the city to the product and the idea? That that was a real problem in many respects. I think in particular before there was, in starting in the 70s and 80s, a, a, a real expansion of Atlanta's black middle class, it was very tough for the, the Hawks to find a steady fan base. Um, they're the kind of person who could afford a season ticket, tended to live in the affluent northern suburbs, and there seemed to be very little interest in basketball. Even Georgia Tech wasn't a superb drawing uh, program in this time period. So the Hawks had a, had a, really had a tough time building support, even though the Hawks team that arrived in town in 1968 from St. Louis was a very good team. I mean, they ended up in the Western Division Finals in 1969 and 1970. The team they lose to was the was a Lakers team with all of the you know West and uh, Baylor and all those uh, legendary Lakers players. So this is a very strong team, but an almost exclusively African-American team, too. And the Hawks' ownership was concerned about that from day one in terms of moving to Atlanta. How are they going to draw you know, a, a white Southern fan base to watch a largely African-American team? 
there comes Pete Maravich, the franchise in many ways, um, puts all of the weight upon his shoulders. They restructure the franchise around this. Many of their top players end up moving on to the ABA and elsewhere as a result of this. And the Hawks got significantly worse with Pete Maravich there, not really because of him, but because so many of their, their top players from when they arrived in town were gone. And Pete attracted as, as a spectacle, as a show a little bit, but not even particularly well. I mean, the Hawks were among the worst trying teams in the NBA, both when they played at the Alexander Memorial Coliseum at Georgia Tech, and even when they moved to the Omni. There were many a Friday nights when pro wrestling at the Old City Armory <laughs> outdrew the Hawks playing at the Omni. That's amazing. That is so, and it's a different time. So this might be revisionist, Clayton, but some of us have always wondered who are born and raised here. Had there mm-hmm. been like forethought, like, you know, forward thinking, to build some of these buildings in the northern suburbs as the city was growing, whether that was the Omni. And it was a different time and, and yeah. Atlanta falling. Like, was there ever a thought to that, that maybe if we do build in different areas, fan bases will be more willing to come and we'll get a more steady fan base, even if the product isn't great? I, I think I think as Atlanta grew and grew and grew outward, that was more the case. I think part of it, though, is for a lot of these new pro sports team towns, building a stadium downtown was a way of showing the world that this is an important city. Maybe a little less in Atlanta than some other places, but you look at New Orleans and the and the sense of cultural importance they put in building the Superdome. You look at the Astrodome in Houston. These downtown stadiums were showpieces for these cities to prove to New York and L.A. and Chicago that this is an important city and you need to treat us as being one of a city just like you. So I think for them, so much of it was just the prestige aspect of having a big modern stadium downtown. And strangely, in the case of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, it is Charlie Finley who picks the spot of that stadium. He is considering moving the Kansas City A's to town. And he goes on a tour with different members of the city's chamber of commerce, and they show him what was the old Lakewood Park racetrack and different locations kind of on the outskirts of town. And he sees all these interstates converging in South Atlanta, and he says, stick it in the middle of that. That will be all these 32 lanes coming from across the south will all converge upon my stadium. He doesn't end up moving to town, but they end up deciding that's the place to build the stadium. Uh, And the same thing with the Omni for, for Tom Cousins. Tom Cousins, when he bought the Hawks, admitted that Wilt Chamberlain was the only guy in the NBA he'd ever heard of. His interest was revitalizing downtown, bringing people back from the suburbs, and the Omni Arena was part of a larger plan of his with his uh, broader Omni International Complex, which later becomes the CNN Center, to to kind of create a new center of gravity for the for the for the region. And the Omni Arena was a big part of this, not just as a place to have sports, but as a place to have concerts and religious gatherings and other kind of cultural events. Um, so these stadiums served purposes that were well beyond actually just sports, and that's something I talk about quite a bit in my book. Yes, we're brought to you by the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. It's kind of my go-to. I'm a little bit lucky. I live in Woodstock, so I'm right around the corner to downtown Woodstock on Main Street to see the Daily Draft, which I've told you many times, it's the ultimate sports bar experience, not your father's sports bar. You're talking wall-to-wall flat screens, self-serve taps, craft bar, chef-inspired menu. And with sizzling plays ahead, if you're planning on tailgating both this summer or this fall, maybe you're going to MBS or Athens or on the flats, or you're hosting a game night at your home, check out the Daily Draft's newest menu edition, the Tailgate Box. Yes, you can enjoy their wings, 
boneless wings, a couple of sides, a bag of popcorn, and of course, their homemade jumbo cookies. Now, these are pre-order only. You can go to the uh, thedailydraft.net or give them a call at the Daily Draft to get the pre-orders in. If you're also looking for a new place to grab lunch during the week or even order on Uber Eats, check out the Daily Draft. They have a great lunch lineup for only 11 bucks Monday through Friday from 11.30 till 3.30. Again, go to thedailydraft.net or you can check them out on Facebook or Instagram. The Daily Draft, a unique experience from the moment you walk through the door, a walk-up window to order drinks from the sidewalk, craft beer bar, pool tables, darts, wall-to-wall flat screens. You won't miss a single second of the game. Go check them out today at The Daily Draft. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. So maybe this isn't a dumb question and an obvious answer, but was it all too much too quick and the fact that they all came to town so quickly? Could it have been solved if they just had won more early? Because, Clayton, part of the problem with Atlanta is – Winning a lot of times is not enough. You got to win with style. Absolutely, and I, I, th- I think that's an excellent point. I just think it was too much, too quick. But in, a lot of people will look at the title of my book and see it as being like a criticism of Atlanta. That is not how I intended it at all. It is to evoke a particular time and place in the city's history in the '60s and '70s. It's coming from an Atlanta Constitution piece with that title. I have great respect for the leadership of, of Atlanta in this time period for the bravado they showed in bringing big league sports to town. Nobody had ever done what they've done at what they've done at this point. They just had such ambition in, t- in terms of trying to make Atlanta a major league city, and they succeeded at it. They really had no sense of what the consequences of this would be because nobody had ever done it before. For. But then Atlanta creates the models, and so many other people did the same thing over and over and over again and found the same struggles Atlanta did. So this in some ways should have been a cautionary tale, but it didn't because Phoenix does the same thing, Tampa does the same thing, San Diego does the same thing, other cities in the southeast in many ways do the same thing. And it really a lot of times just doesn't turn out quite as you as, as you intended to. Um, I think I think if anything, I want people to take away from the book is the idea that if you want to lure a pro sports team to town, it should be because you want to watch that sport. It shouldn't be because you think it's going to bring your city together or you think it's going to be prestigious and make everybody look look more positively upon your community. It should simply be because you want people to watch that because people want to follow that team and watch that sport. What surprised you the most? You know, just talking to the different folks you did, what didn't you know that kind of really surprised you about the climate of Atlanta at the time? I think the the degree of ambition of the city leadership to be this world-class city is something that just continually uh, I, I found remarkable and, and remains true to this day. I mean, certainly the pursuit of the Olympics had a very similar feel to it. It was just a new generation in the city leadership. And I think Atlanta in many ways still retains that spirit. I mean, it's very much a city... Uh, a city built upon dreams in many ways of, of, of building this kind of new community out of, um, 
you know, out of nothing in some ways. And, and, and I think for new generations of people who come to Atlanta from other places, it, it, it plays that role that it's, it's, it can kind of be what you want it to be. And it, it's, uh, it's a place that for, for a century at least has drawn very ambitious people uh, from very different places, and they've, they've used it as the, the centerpiece for their ambitions. So I guess I was continually impressed by that, about the people I, I, I talked to, the sources I consulted, the, re, the, um, the uh, archives that I looked at uh, when I did this. I mean, this is a 10-year process for me writing this book, and uh, I really had no connection to Atlanta. But in many ways, I kind of fall in love with the city by doing this. I mean, just it's such a unique story, I think. And uh, it was a real, real pleasure to get to know a community in such detail. Clayton, before I let you go, um, I, I think what separates us from a lot of other cities is I mean, we talk about you know, there are a lot of parochial cities and a lot of like generations of I'm from Pittsburgh. My family lived there for four generations in Chicago and New York. Atlanta's just not that way. That's why I always joke. I'm one of the three people from the city. And, and cities like that, they'll wear their failures sort of as a badge of honor, the lovable loser cubs, you know, the hard times that teams have gone through. Like, did you get a sense talking to people? Do people look back fondly on that time who are either long-term or, or have come to the city with any knowledge of that time in Atlanta? I think the people who are the longtime residents kind of do. I think people, if you're if you are a longtime Hawks fan, if you've been cheering for the Hawks for the, from the '70s onward, you are a remarkably good and loyal sports fan. And the sports and the Hawks fans, the Braves fans, the Falcons fans I, I talked to who'd supported teams from those time periods, I think they do view it with a badge of honor. I think a lot of the newer people to the community just don't understand the legacy of it. But the people who have been following those teams for four or five decades, those. Are, those people at this point are incredibly long-term and durable sports fans and have shown a great deal of persistence in supporting those teams, and I, I really have great admiration for them. Uh, one of the first things I did when I researched the book was back when the Georgia Dome was still up, I went to a, a Falcons tailgate and just walked around and talked to people and listened to their stories about, oh, I you know, I came watch Tommy Nobis with my dad in 1971, and I've been a fan ever since then. To, to remain that loyal to a team that really in many ways gave you not a ton to show for it. You are an incredibly devoted sports fan, and I really, really admire those people. The book is—it sounds fascinating. I, I'm going to let you uh, tell us where we can find it. But Loserville is the name of the book, and as Clayton just told you, it's not meant as a shot at Atlanta. It's just kind of a uh, sort of a time capsule of our city at the time. Uh, tell people where they can find the book. Sure. My, my name is Clayton Truder. The book is called Loserville: How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's being published by the University of Nebraska Press, which is the country's top publisher of sports history books. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the well-known online book retailers. The book comes out in early 2022. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Clayton Truder. I'd love to hear from you, and I'd love to talk about Atlanta sports with everybody. Clayton, I loved it. That is, again, I I'm, I'm, can't wait to read it. Fascinating, and we appreciate the time today. Matt, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Follow the podcast, Park, on social media for live updates as new episodes hit and behind-the-scenes looks at all our shows. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Podcast Park. Avoiding hassle is a big part of what I love in my life. When I have professionals, great folks, doing good work for me, that's part of the process. Well, the Rhodes Group is a great bunch of people, a locally owned insurance agency that will find you the best rates when it comes to home and car insurance. They will give you 10 quotes in 10 minutes, which is going to give you the best when it comes to shopping those rates. I'll put it to you this way. If you were born after 1985, the thought of talking on the phone probably makes you cringe. 
but chatting with a bot isn't fun either? Well, chat with a live local insurance agent. You can do that on Facebook, and you can get those 10 quotes in 10 minutes, either online or over the phone. If you need advice when it comes to the home insurance, when it comes to the car insurance, those rates can jump up at any time. You need professionals to do that for you. Go to the Rhodes Group's website or check them out on Facebook. I would tell you about it, roads-group.com. There's a link you'll see at Real Matt Land on Twitter. Have them shop your rates. These are the pros. They save me a ton of money. They can do the same for you. Go to roads-group.com to save that money today. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. A lifetime of hard work, children laughing in the kitchen, family photos on a restaurant wall, a legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation, like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Guys, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Thanks to Brian Murphy for producing the podcast, and thanks to you guys for making us your weekly destination. We'll talk to you next week on Welcome to Madland. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play, and we ride on them things like every day. Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming, and parties don't stop till 8 in the morning. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play, and we ride on them things like every day. Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming, uh-huh. and parties don't stop yeah. till The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC.